you are hearing this, you are receiving a signal from another planet. Fanboy planet. Watch animate chicks with inflatable breasts. You might be a Trekkie. Sit back and watch as the Uber geek goes and kicks it up a notch. Turn to the left to F in your dictionary. And add this word to your vocabulary. Take a look, cause I'm the real McCoy. Damn it, Jim, I'm not a doctor. I'm just the definition of a fanboy, baby. I'm a nerd Listen up, fanboys. It's the Fanboy Planet Podcast. Hi, I'm Rick Brett Snyder, solo once again as the globetrotting Derek McCaw is off making the world safe for you and me. But he's here in spirit, and recorded spirits at that. This episode, we're covering three of our favorite films from Cinequest. Cinequest is San Jose, California's preeminent film festival, voted number one film festival in the USA by readers of USA Today. While watching dozens of great independent films, we were able to sit down with the crews and casts of Love Is All You Need, which is a powerful message about bullying and acceptance within an alternate world twist. The Phoenix Incident, a UFO invasion story that you probably saw on the news. And finally, Friends, Effing Friends, Effing Friends, a modern comedy drama about relationships between circles of friends in modern society. We picked these select for you, and I think you're going to enjoy them. So that said, let's start out with Rocco Shields and the crew of Love Is All You Need? Question mark. We are here at CineQuest 27 with the cast, is it cast members, crew, uh, creators of... The film Love is All You Need. So introduce yourself so that our listeners can hear who's who. Sure. I'm David Tillman. I'm one of the co-writers with... I'm Kay Rocco Shields, uh, co-writer, director, and producer of Love is All You Need. I'm uh, Blake Cooper Griffin. I play Bill Bradley in the film. I'm Mike C. Manning, and I play Benson in the film. All right. Thank you all for sitting down with us. We are here at... The Continental in downtown San Jose. Yes, yes. Um, best Bloody Marys in San Jose. <laughs> that's right you, that's and they're flowing and, freely, yeah, let me tell you. <laughs> they are. Well, that's because you're the VIP now as part of it. <laughs> they are I don't freely. think they flow quite so freely during the outside of Cinequest. <laughs> I've never had that there's a world outside of Cinequest? There is not. There is not. So let me, you know, this began as a short film. We had programmer Mike Rabel on start by asking, I mean, this is where its origin was. It was a short film, and what was your inspiration? We, um, I came up with this idea when bullying was all over the news in 2010. People couldn't quite understand why kids were being bullied, and moreover, why 11-year-olds or young children were taking their own lives because of it. Um, And I went to sleep thinking, gosh, if it was just reversed, maybe they would understand, and woke up with this idea of creating this film. Um, the premise of this inversion, which is essentially gay is straight and straight is gay, um, has been done before, but only in a comedic sense. So it was my vision to make it dramatic, but yet relatable. So we're not playing on any sort of stigma or stereotypes or trying to define this quote-unquote 
gay world. It's a world just like our own with this one small inversion. And I met with David, who has sadly um, also a victim of bullying when he was younger, and he was the perfect co-writer for the project. Um, the short film went to over 30 million people worldwide. It had been leaked on the internet after doing a very successful uh, festival circuit. And that was enough for me to get the feature film funded after knocking on quite a few doors. Um, it was a process, but everything happens for a reason. And now I'm blessed with this amazing cast, this amazing story. And we are having our world premiere tomorrow night at Cinequest. That's wonderful. So, how did you guys, as cast members, get involved? What I mean, I can guess what you know is powerful material right off the, off the bat. What attracted you to it? Well, it, it, it's interesting because with um, with Love Is All You Need, um, I got the script like you always do about eight o'clock the night before you're going in to to audition for it. And um, you know what I usually do is grab a cup of coffee and I sit there and I start to read the script and. Um, Sometimes that goes well, and you're kind of like, you know, you, you enjoy it, and sometimes you're thumbing through rather quickly. With this, I was so taken with the concept that Rocco and David had put together, and um, I knew immediately that I wanted to figure out a way that I could be a part of it. And um, as an actor, you know, a lot of times, you know, you're going in for things, and, and you know, I'm not going to lie, sometimes it's like, you, you need the next job. And then sometimes it's something that you really feel passionately about. And the character of Bill Bradley leapt off the page for me. It's a, um, I think it's fair to say it's a darker role in the film. It definitely has a kind of antagonistic uh, bend to it. Um, I'm happy to say that I don't have a lot of Bill Bradley in me. But, <laughs> but, I, but, but I, was, I was really sort of obsessed with figuring out what made someone like Bill Bradley do the things that they do. And I think that that's important so that we can look at that and see the implication of those actions. And I think that I think that that's the world that Rocco and David have created is by creating this sort of inversion. We can all feel empathy um, for really all people and all people who are bullied. Well, I was going to ask that. I mean, the interesting question out of that is: Does that empathy extend then to the bullies? If you're put mm -hmm. in a world where it's, it's flipped and, and, and maybe a little more understandable. And, and I asked because a few weeks ago I attended a, a, a convention panel with sci-fi people that talked about actually their moment of being bullies and their road to Damascus, realizing mm -hmm. this was wrong. Right. Did by flipping the script literally for you, right. did it give you a special insight? It did. But, you know, I think that that was really out of the minds of you guys because what they did was that they, I, you know I don't want to give anything away but I definitely want people to come see the film and, and I think what you'll see is there's no doubt about it the things that Bill Bradley does in the film um, are not good things you know and, and I don't think that we can sort of shy away from that but at the same time I do think that there are some moments where we get to see the interior of what's going on and and the question that I think it asks is what role does our society and institutions in society play in that anti-tolerant, you know, being, being anti-tolerant, being, being intolerant, I guess is the word. I've made up a word here, um, and I'm feeling very good about that. Uh, 
funny you would ask this because these are like two of the antagonists on the film. So it's interesting to hear you guys speak of. Well, then let me. Well, it's it's interesting what Blake is talking about. I think that um, my my um, coming onto the film was was a little different. I had met Rocco uh, shooting a music video of all things uh, a couple years ago, and you know, as you know, when you're shooting something, you have a lot of downtime. And so Rocco and I, we were in the corner, and and she said, "Oh, I had this this uh, this viral." Um, this viral short that, you know, the short that went viral and, and now I'm going to make it into a film and she started talking to me about the, the plot and anyone else doing this I think could have created a very you know d- one dimensional story mm-hmm. and it could have been cliche and it could have been simple and and Rocco said that to me and I said okay sure like well, yeah, it's very nice to meet you let me, let me see your short and let me read your script and she and I, I watched the short. It kind of like Blake. I had a cup of coffee. It's eight o'clock at night. I watched the short, and I, I, I was, a, I, I couldn't. I had to walk. I, I had to shut my computer down. I had to go for a walk because I was like, it, it, in a very, very visceral and real way, captured what goes, what, what happens when people are bullied, and what happens when kids are bullied, and what happens when the process of, of a kid being quote unquote normal to being on the verge of taking their own life, mm-hmm. life. And, and, it, and it captured that, and I said, oh my God, if she can do this in, in, a, in, a, in a film, this is going to be amazing. I read the script, and I called her, and the next day I said, I don't know how, but I, I want to be involved in this. This is, this, is a, this is a story that I want to be involved with how can we make this happen? And I went in and auditioned, and and um, and I could not be prouder of the final the final product. I mean, I think the crux of the empathy that Blake was talking about earlier, and and what is makes this film special is you really see it's a 360 degree story of not only those that are bullied, but the ones that do the bullying, and what happens, and the 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 the, the psyche of of not only the bullied, but the entire community. And, and, and the ripple effects that the, this bullying has. How did you, Rocco, uh, avoid... Because I, I, you know, I said I've seen the short. How did you avoid getting too pedantic or preachy? You know, because it could be very easy to slide into that. Right. And well, both of you. I mean, both of you. I shouldn't think yeah. The key for this film is that it is based on true events. There is a preacher in the film who does preach, but every word out of her mouth was taken directly out of Fred Phelps' mouth from the Westboro Baptist Church. And by grounding this in the teachings of churches that actually exist, the small communities that actually exist, I feel that the power of the film will resonate because it's not made up. It's it's not at all. It's very, very real. And to me, that's that was the most compelling thing to write, to really infuse that into it, because it's almost absurd when you flip it around, and that's ultimately what I want the audience to take. They're like, what? It's exactly how a community has been taught. This is the way the world is. This is why you should fear homosexuality. But it's flipped. So I can't wait to see what audiences think. I think the initial takeaway will be like, what? But then once you get into it, you'll see, and once you understand that it is based on true events, you will... I think, I think, I mean, right. you could speak but on one it. of the things we really try to strive to find is why does Bill Bradley do the things he do, does? You know, why does Benson do the things he does? And again, with our, our Reverend character, what is driving her? So that as the audience is watching the show and seeing these, what could be perceived as horrific events, okay? Mm-hmm. Oh, there's a, there's a reason for it. They're just not being evil to be being evil. They think they're doing the right thing. They and think they're following their, mm. their path. 
And know. that was key to writing the script is to invoke that humanity in all of the characters that them. are bullies. Well, let me ask. I mean, for you two, who didn't talk about that yet, about that, did something as you researched, as you were writing this, did it open up a, a level of understanding of, shall we say, the fear? I'd rather say the fear because I don't even... I mean, there is hatred, but I know that it's, a lot of it is based in fear. Mm-hmm. I think that... Um, I had to, when crafting the reverence character especially, really understand where Westboro comes from, where their teachings, because they're the ones with the science, God, oh, I, sky, oh. they're everywhere, and so when We're people see them, conventions. They, right. uh, you know, they, they protest right. nerds. So it was so fascinating to me, and so what simple, I did was nerds, simple. <laughs> what I did was I went very deep into their teachings, and I ultimately, you can quote me, I understand why they believe why they do. I don't agree with it, but I understand. And that understanding was translated to the screen. So I hope that through this film and that inversion, they will. But not only that, but David brings um, his own experience with bullying to this film, which why this was the perfect kind of writing team for this project. David, do you want to talk a little bit about that attraction? I, I shouldn't say attraction, but I mean, what brought you to the project of saying you've had some experience? Yeah, unfortunately, yes. Well, uh, and, you know, we go through life wondering, you know, why me? Why is this happening to me? You know, and you try to pull yourself up by the bootstraps and, you know, tough it up. And, you know, my parents maybe take karate classes, you know, things that only added to the bullying, you know, because, oh, well, now you know karate, so you should be, you know. Uh, but to be in this moment at this time in 2016 to have created this film that will ideally change the world. That will open people's eyes up. So I understand what you know the um, it gets better, you know, concept mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. campaign that's going on. It does if you can look at something and think, okay, what is my take? What am I learning from this experience? Why has God given me this experience to have? And then you want to share it. And I think it's interesting that yes, we have a, a major background in religion in this particular film. Mm-hmm. It's not attacking religion. It's exposing elements of it. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a, obviously a lot of good things about people's faith. Well, because you just said, why has God given me this situation? So, right. I, I think mean, do you mind? I mean, don't normally get in that, but I mean, is there is there a faith background for you? I, I was raised Catholic, and then I studied the Kabbalah for three or four years. I studied the Red Path, Native American spirituality for like seven years, and Buddhism. So I'm very spiritually oriented. And Rocco let me explore all of yeah, those things. In the Even in the firelight, I see Rocco's face here. <laughs> I went to Catholic school my whole life. And I think ultimately what I am trying to show through this film is that there is a lack of translation to our modern day society. And people so blindly project this book without actually understanding its meaning. And so ultimately what you're seeing through the film is a preacher that's constantly just spinning what she has been taught just to blindly recite. And then you see other characters get interpreting interpreting that and taking it and running with it in a very wrong way. And so we'll ultimately see how the Bible can be used for very, very good, but ultimately if you don't take it with a filter as is anything and adapt it to our modern day society, sometimes people can take it a little too far. And I can, and I can. I think it's worth saying that I, this is Mike. I, I go to church, and and religion is a part of my life, and it is a part of my life. It's I wasn't raised that way. It was by choice, and I've seen religion do amazing things in people's lives. I've seen people take religion and use it and use the the, the message of love to to transform themselves. 
and, 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 and use that for good. And so I, I love religion for that. This film does not... Um, it does not change it does not offend it me whatsoever it doesn't mm-hmm. invalidate that at all it just shows you it, it, it shows you how religion could potentially be used as a weapon but as someone that religion is a very important part of my life I, 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 I this film sh- it sh- serves as a warning it's almost like it doesn't have to be this way. You know right. what I mean? Religion is based on love, and this film is based on love, and and love is something that everyone can relate to. Love is, and so it's very. All you need, love right? is all you need, right? Makes sense. You want an interesting? Oh, uh, that, should be, that should be the title yeah. of the great closing, or yeah. or, or, or a Beatles song. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But what would be what what is next? You're premiering here, but is, is there a distribution deal in place, or you know because. By the time people hear this podcast, it'll be out, but it may be too late to catch the film yes. here. Right. here. But where will they be able to catch it? We are embarking on an amazing festival um, tour around mm-hmm. the uh, around the nation and then abroad. I can't disclose the details of that quite yet. We understand. Yet, we do understand. But if you check out our website, loveisallyouneedthemovie.com, you could find out where we're showing. And then hopefully we will be worldwide. Very, very soon. We'll have a link to that in the podcast. Great. Right. 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 Yeah. Right. Thank you. Excellent. Right. Excellent. Well, thank you all for taking some time. To sit thank, you. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much. Talk yeah. about Exciting. the film in the firelight. Yeah. So. Okay. Great Cinequest. Awesome. Thank, thank you, you so thank much. You. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Cinequest. Cinequest. I feel like we're going on a journey. We are. Quest of Cinema. Great interview. And, you know, we hadn't seen... Love is all you need at the time of that recording. And since then we have, I have to say it's one of the most powerful movies I've seen in quite a while, regardless of whether it was CineQuest or not. And highly recommend that you seek this film out. Uh, I expect that it will not be too hard to do so. It's going to be very popular. I have to apologize for some of the rumbling in our recording there. While long-time listeners will know that we love to be in lively locations with lots of ambient sounds, this recording took place in a covered patio during one of the biggest California storms this year. So there was a bit of wind hitting our mics. Sorry. But you know, sometimes the ambient sound adds an unexpected bit of punctuation to a recording that I couldn't have set up if I tried. The evidence is in this next interview with Keith Aram, director-writer of The Phoenix Incident. See if you can figure out just what I'm talking about. And we are here at Cinequest at the Continental. This is a beautiful patio. This is wonderful. And I love the firelight. You know? I, we have, we, we've never recorded by firelight. I honestly think this is the first. Uh, this is the first night we've ever done a firelight podcast. I like it, um, and it seems somewhat appropriate. I, a sight unseen. Um, uh, we're here with Keith Aram and Nick Pope. Uh, we're here at Cinequest with the Phoenix Incident. Right. Which I first identify yourselves so people know who's talking. Yeah, so I'm I'm Keith Aram, I'm the writer and the director of the Just film. Second. Let's wait until the plane comes over it's and then the hell of the San Jose Airport that's be no very plane. close. Yeah, that's, that's no, no plane. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, that's right, right answer. So I'm uh, Keith Aram, I'm the writer and the director of the Phoenix Incident, and uh, this has been just an amazing journey and I'm so glad we're here. And I'm Nick Pope. I used to investigate UFOs for the British government, and I've been uh, working with Keith, uh, you know, trying to start a conversation with uh, maybe some of the people that see the film. How much of this is real? Where is the line between fact and fiction? This is so fascinating to me. So I, I, I was very excited to hear that you were here as well. Um, so welcome both. Let's start with what the Phoenix Incident is about. 
So the Phoenix incident is an investigation into the largest UFO military cover-up in U.S. history. And we explore the disappearance of uh, four men that went missing the night of the infamous Phoenix Lights that took place in March of 1997. So the film is sort of what we consider a docu-thriller. Uh, it starts very much as a documentary, and then it goes into a fictitious account of what may have happened that night. And uh, and so we have this really this blurring of the lines because we met with almost a thousand eyewitnesses, military consultants. Uh, we have real military footage, real eyewitness footage, footage, and then we incorporated our story and wove it between all of that. So when you're watching the film, you really have this experience of understanding what may have happened, but you also don't know where the line between fact and fiction really is. Yes, and you've got, uh, well, you have a heavy background, actually, in video games. Right. Voice direction? Yeah, so uh, motion capture, voiceover, ADR, sound design, music. Uh, I kind of have a multi-hyphenate background. Uh, I run PCB Productions in Los Angeles where we have five recording stages. And for the past 20 years, I've been working in the game industry as a talent director. Uh, I've worked on 11 of the past Call of Duty video games. Uh, came from scoring a lot of games, but then I started directing a lot of the actors, starting to do all of the motion capture, green screen, facial capture, ADR. And so that's evolved into this passion of telling stories. And this is my first motion picture. And that's, that's an excellent transition. Uh, so, Nick, how did you get involved in well, this Keith, project? Keith reached out to me and said, look, you know, I'm doing this movie. Uh, you have, hey, the men in black are absolutely harassing us during this interview. They, are, they, are, they don't want the truth to be known. <laughs> there, no, there were no flyovers during our last set of interviews. No, absolutely. Yeah, I, and I now, now they know. I'm, I'm getting a little bit too close here, you know, my secrecy <laughs> oath and all that. Um, no, Keith reached out to me and said, look, you know, you used to investigate UFOs for the British government, kind of. I've been called the real-life Fox Mulder, that, that kind of stuff. But Keith wanted to, to bring some realism to the Phoenix incident, to, to kind of bring in some of the, the genuine incidents, to ask how much of this is true, could be true, and, and you know, ask those big what-if questions. And I've done some uh, work on some other movies before, and some video games too, and uh, I, I'm a huge film fan myself, so I, I jumped at the chance to get involved in this. It, it's, it's interesting, but it's fun. And it's been really interesting because getting to know Nick and not just his experience and his insight to it, but then the history and, and learning of other cases that were similar to this or in, that really inspired all the investigation that we did into this film. So having Nick now involved and in being able to talk about the fact and fiction behind the film has been invaluable because it's really encouraging our audience to start to explore the actual research behind the case. Well, as you're developing this story, Keith, the question I have. You said inspired, certainly, but did you find out something that scared the crap out of you? <laughs> uh, a lot of it scared the crap out of us. <laughs> I mean, the fact is, is that 30,000 people witnessed this, and the governor of the state came out and said he saw a craft, and there were military people and consultants that I met with that said there were pilots that went up and were shaken encountering these lights and engaging whatever happened there. The military has a, a public sort of statement that these were military flares dropped from the 104th Airborne. Because and, of course. Right, and exactly. <laughs> uh, but That's what they do. <laughs> yeah. And, and definitely the thing that scared me the most is that you there's obviously there's there's misdirection there's a lot of different ideas of what could have happened but when you have so many consistent eyewitness accounts seen it over such a large span of time 
we definitely say in the film that there were flares, but there was something else to that night, and that's why this film takes is that what Is this the if. largest sighting? I mean, 30,000 people, when you say that, that, yeah. that seems... That's a hard number to debunk. That's right. That's right. And, and from, from everything I've seen and investigated, that this is the largest mass sighting in U.S. history. I don't know if, if there's been other ones that you can speak of. Well, there's rumors of ones in China and Russia, but it's very hard to pin down the numbers. But mm-hmm. I, I certainly think that uh, you know, in, in the United States and, and certainly in the West, where we have reliable information, reliable figures, this is as good as it gets. And, and the Phoenix incident... I've interviewed a lot of those witnesses. I've met the governor, who, who uh, as Keith said, was a witness himself, uh, a former pilot himself. And, and I've spoken to people who said, literally, and it sounds like a cliche, but I've had people say, if I threw a rock up, I would have hit the underside of this thing. And I've, I've interviewed police officers, pilots, military personnel who've, who've seen these sorts of things, mainly in the UK. But when I hear talk of the Phoenix incident... You know, people's voices are almost still shaking with emotion when they talk about this. Because it is startling. Yeah. Even if you're not a believer, you see something. And that's one of the things is that the reason why we sort of fictionalized or or we said, you know, it's inspired by real events. But a lot of our audience coming from the game space, our audience is 18 to 35 year olds. And a lot of these people who are watching our film have, weren't even alive when the Phoenix Lights happened. So this is an ancient case that yeah, heard about. Yeah, thank you for that perspective. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and for me, you know, I had heard about Roswell and other things, you know, as a, as a kid, but that's such a, 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 a an older case that yeah, okay, there's so many different explanations but this, I grew up in Arizona. I had friends who say they saw this thing. And so when you have such a personal account and, and you have so many eyewitnesses and Footage. You have people who actually videotape this from multiple angles, and while you could say, well, you could debunk that this was just flares, when you have that many people who are talking about this in a generation now where people have access to cameras, they have access to, to footage, mm-hmm. it's really hard to, to really so, say that nothing happened. Yeah, I mean, do you believe that, that that's really the responses? The governments, and I'll say plural, used to be able to cover these things up very well. We're entering a time where you really... If there's something going on, it's harder and harder to hide. Absolutely, absolutely. And what? And this is even perfect here. This is the year the X Files came back for six six episodes, right? To mixed result. Um, but I just saw the news last week that that NASA admitted that the astronauts in Apollo eleven heard music in space. Right. So. There's a lot of Rick, tell me yeah. about this. No, well, they, what do you know, man? Yeah, what I, do you know? The, the, the music in space story is an interesting one, but certainly when you look at the, the astronauts, it's a mixed bag. Um, I think a lot of them have to toe the party line. But Edgar Mitchell, who sadly died just very recently, but he, yeah. sixth man to walk on, on the moon, was an absolute believer not only in, in an extraterrestrial reality, but in an associated government cover-up. Uh, Gordon Cooper had seen a UFO, uh, so there are astronaut UFO stories, and, and they certainly are amongst the most interesting and compelling ones. You look at the news coming out of NASA, whether it's, it's like uh, space telescopes, exoplanets, you get the impression there's a kind of ticking clock here. We're getting closer and closer to something. It seems hardly a week goes by without stories about UFOs, alien life. It's coming. It's right above us now. Uh, and they we speak. And they know when, <laughs> they know when Nick You'd is You'd think they would have better... Uh, yeah, it is always Nick. It's always um, Nick. It you'd is. think they have better silencers. 
But, but I think I think one of the things that's really interesting about that is that there's so many conspiracy theories around this particular event, right? You had the Hale-Bopp comet that was coming through. There were rumors oh, okay. of a shadow that were, was trailing behind the comet, which sort of this triggered this red alert for this cult group called the Heaven's Gate. And a lot of people remember the Heaven's yeah, Gate. I do remember Heaven's Gate. A lot of people don't remember that it was the next week. So what happened was was that the Hale-Bopp comet's coming through. They see the shadow. Some people describe a triangular shape or some kind of craft behind it. Um, whether that was ice crystals or not is up for debate. But what happened was is that they went into red alert. The Phoenix Lights happens on March 13th. All these people coming out to see the comet. And they see this formation of lights that comes from the Nevada border all the way down through Paulden across the state and then over Phoenix and disappearing over the Australia mountain range towards Tucson. So then you have all these eyewitnesses there. The next week, the Heaven's Gate takes their lives in the largest mass suicide in U.S. history. Then you have Captain Craig Button, one of the A-10 pilots from davis Monthan, who was attributed to launching these flares. Uh, some say that he might have been going to the press. Other people said that he had psychological problems. This guy breaks off of formation, uh, flies his A-10 all the way to the Colorado uh, border, and slams his plane with four intact bombs into the side of a Colorado mountainside and it takes them weeks to recover his ship and his body or they never find wow. find his body and then two weeks after that his training officer the only female pilot in the A-10 fleet she also dies under a mysterious training accident so you had all of this happening and at the same time uh, Arizona has the highest number of missing persons case uh, in the country, right? Uh, per capita, the highest number of missing persons. Since that time, there's not only been 150 people who d- disappear each year, but there's been over 2,000 uh, undocumented cases that the Border Patrol has kept track of. Um, 257 disappearances in Maricopa County. You have the highest number of unexplained cattle deaths in Arizona, especially in 97, over 100,000, according to the Department of Agriculture. So there's all these conspiracy theories that are going on. And then you hear about this Operation Snowbird that was attributed to the training exercises, but so many of the eyewitnesses and people coming out of the military are talking about this distraction operation, the idea that the flares were being dropped to distract the public from any kind of mass sighting that would take place over the city. So once you get all those going on and then the military says they were just flares, it's like it's the perfect mixture uh, to explore in a film like ours. This is, uh, you know, it's one of those things where I go, oh, I grew up, you know, believing all this. And, I, you know, s- still to some extent. And listeners would assume we almost have to be believing this. But, so I get from your perspective, you've researched this deeply. Nick, what got you into this in the first place? What was the, the clincher? Or are you the cynic? Are you the one trying to disprove? Well, a bit of both. I fell into this subject by accident. I mean, years ago, I worked for the British government at the Ministry of Defence for 21 years. And for much of the early 90s, I was basically uh, recruited onto their UFO project, which was the British government's equivalent of the now defunct US Air Force um, program, Project Bluebird. So I had no prior interest in this. I had no belief in this. I was a skeptic, but I was given this job I investigated two or three hundred UFO sightings each year. I delved back through the archive, the real-life X-Files, and I began to change my mind and think, well, wait a minute, you know, there's something to this. Sure, there are misidentifications and hoaxes and delusions, but there's no smoke without fire. You know, over the, the years, tens of thousands of people, many of them reliable witnesses, police officers, pilots, military personnel, etc., have seen these things. They've been tracked on radar. There have been photos and videos that even the the government's own imagery analysis 
you know, expertise cannot debunk. And, and so I got drawn into this subject. And even long after I left government, I've stayed involved in this because it's, it's one of the biggest and most profound questions we can ask. Are we alone or not in the universe? Are we being visited? I mean, these are profound questions, but the interesting thing about those profound questions, unlike some, is we might be able to get an answer to them. You know, a little bit more research and investigation, a couple of whistleblowers maybe. You know, who knows where we'll end up. And, and uh, you know, there is, there is a dark side to this too. I mean, Keith mentioned some of the, the things. I live in, in Arizona now myself. It's a bizarre thing. People are still talking about the Phoenix lights, the Phoenix incident, you know, years afterwards. And, and there's still this kind of buzz about it. So if I pin you down, you say these things are still questions. Yes, absolutely. Do you believe? I believe there's absolutely life out there, yes. Why shouldn't there be? Unless we thought, and some do, but, but unless we really thought that life here was some sort of cosmic miracle, the same factors that gave... Well, couldn't it both be true? It could be, but, you know, look, so far as we know, um, the laws of physics, the laws of chemistry, and the observable universe seem to be constant. So, therefore, the same factors that gave rise to life here should replicate throughout the cosmos. There should be life out there. And just as we are beginning to take our first baby steps out into the wider cosmos, is it any stretch of the imagination to say that others, um, with just maybe a couple of hundred, few thousand years head start on us, might be doing the same thing? And that was actually an interesting also point is that there is so much factual information in the film and the fact that we've then fictionalized the story with our characters going through I was very concerned that I didn't want our audience to think that we're doing a disinformation campaign because I am very passionate about this mm-hmm. subject. I'm a healthy skeptic. I need proof. I come from an engineering background, and I do need some sort of proof. And in this case, even though you have photo and video documentation, you have so many eyewitnesses that I wanted to incorporate those stories, and you can't necessarily verify them other than the fact that it's hearsay. So in taking this into a fictional account, um, we're inspiring the audience to sort of promote this idea of not only research for themselves, but also this idea of disclosure, to, to look at our government and say, disclose beyond the Freedom of Information Act, aside from everything that's been redacted, that's been released, be open about it. Our society right now, I think, is open or willing you know we watch Independence Day we watch X-Files we see these films I think we're ready we're not, that's another one coming out this year that right, suddenly right. it's all back you know, right. so. and I think we're ready for it I think, I think that if someone said you know what guys the, you know Kepler actually found proof of life I think it would not tear apart our society and we would all rip off our shirts and give up uh, our religion and, and start looting. I think we would be embracing this and it would be a whole new era for our civilization to contact them. Now, whether they're here and abducting people and doing things is a whole nother debate. But in my mind, and I think what, what Nick and I have talked about is the idea is that it's, it's impossible to think that we're alone in the universe. And what I think this film hopefully will do will inspire the audience to say, here's a case that was very well documented. There is a lot of fictional elements to the way the film is portrayed, but it is promoting this idea of a younger generation who might not be familiar with what happened in Roswell and other things other than what pop culture has told them and say, what really happened? And they're going to get online and they're going to start to investigate and they're going to find documentaries, they're going to find Nick's research, they're going to find Lee Spiegel and Alejandro Rojas and other people we're meeting with 
who are really investigating the, the phenomenon mm-hmm. and see what the research is out there. You know, I, I know I'm a motion picture, but at least I can inspire an audience to, to dig deeper, and that's what I can give back. When you, when you came up with the thought, when you started on this project, did you realize you were going to do a fictionalization aspect to it? I, I grew up in Arizona and had always seen things. Uh, you know, down in Tucson, there's Davis Monthan Air Force Base. There's A-10s flying all the time. The Iraq War was starting when I was in college, and we were all afraid we were going to get you know drafted into mm-hmm. the war. Mm-hmm. So you're always looking at the skies, and you're always constantly aware of what's there. And I had seen things. Maybe they were military. Maybe they weren't. But, boy, they really inspire you. When you see something that you don't understand and there is no explanation for it, I understand the passion that so many of these experiencers have seen because you just don't know and you want to know. Well, we, want to, we want to make a story to make sense of what we've seen. Exactly. And for me as a storyteller, this was the, the exactly what I needed to spark that. And then through the course of working on Call of Duty and Ghost Recon and these other games, these military contractors are saying, oh, you grew up in Arizona? Do, do you know what happened with those pilots? <laughs> do you know what really happened? And they'd say, you know, this is off the record. And they would start to tell me these stories. And whether they're just BSing or not, it was amazing to hear their stories. And, and one person who talked to one of our actors, and, and I heard the same story, was he said, and he was in charge of this for the military and specifically investigating for the military and when we asked him like point blank we said just is it real do you have evidence that this is there and he says once you know you can't unknow and that was like the most cryptic, like unsatisfying, but yet Are you engaging. kidding? That is the most amazing response that could be. I know. And that, and that, and <laughs> the truth that, is out there. And that's, that's all I need, right? That's all I need because, and one thing that, that we have both said, and I love the way you say it better than I say it, is that, you know, if there's 99% of all the cases out there are attributed to, you know, atmospheric phenomena or swamp gas or military craft. I don't even understand that swamp gas thing. But anyway. <laughs> but there just has to be you one. You have to try swamp yes. gas. <laughs> I, well. This, this is my favorite quote. The believers only have to be right once. And it's it's the ultimate game changer. And I mean, you know, it's not as if uh, we, we're all having this discussion. But heck, you know, Hillary Clinton is discussing this. John <laughs> Podesta is discussing this. The UFO question, the alien life question, is about arguably to explode into the uh, presidential election. Election campaign and become an issue. It did before. So, I which, mean, which one of the candidates is an alien? Well, I, I, I could <laughs> not possibly comment on that. Of course not. And how big a wall will we? Once you build? know, you can't unknow. <laughs> now, this is getting a national release. Yes, uh, this is getting a national April release. 8th. So, two releases. Uh, so, um, we are coming out in theaters in uh, two hundred select cinemas. Uh, with the military. With or without their cooperation. Whether they're going to stop us or not. Uh, We're coming out with Fathom Events. So we're doing a 200-city national release with Fathom Events. events. It's at 7.30 local time in every theater that carries the Fathom stream. Um, And one of the things that's so fascinating about this is is that we're treating it like an event. Not only do you get to see some of our viral backstory, which is a whole other sort of side to this movie, but we actually um, have incorporated the motion picture into this and uh, and this was what I was so honored is to have uh, Nick uh, involved. We had Lee Spiegel, we had Alejandro Rojas, and Stanton Friedman, and we sat down for cool. a hour-long cool. roundtable to discuss exactly this: the fact and fiction behind this amazing event and other similar events that were there. And so, so if you go to Fathom, you'll see all of that. We'll have that information on our website for this podcast. Thank you so much, guys, for sitting down to talk with us about this. Looking forward to, I swear, I will stay up tonight, because this is premiering at midnight at, at midnight. Cinequest. 
You're so a better man than I. I, <laughs> I just, this is my shot. This is my weekend, you know, know. so I've got to do it. So thank you so much. It's, it's hey, an honor you meeting so you, and it's an honor to talk to you both. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you, gentlemen. Fantastic. Again, I've been in that patio since and have never had that many planes flying directly overhead. I'm not saying anything. I'm just telling you it happened. No special effects there at all. So finally, we move indoors for more culinary ambiance and a conversation with the full cast and director of the movie Friends Effing Friends Effing Friends, Quincy Rose's dramatic comedy about expanding relationships within a small group of friends, friends with benefits and a few problems. This has been one of my favorite films at Cinequest, and I do hope you'll enjoy the conversation. So it's uh, Saturday at Cinequest, San Jose's preeminent film festival, and we are at Sofa Market. As you can hear in the background, there's tons of people chowing down on cheap food. And we're sitting here with the amazingly attractive cast and crew of Friends, Effing Friends, Effing Friends. Did I put the right emphasis on that, or the pauses, were they right? I don't, yeah, I don't think there's any you, pauses. You, friends you, that, friends say it the way you'd say it to your mom. Friends, effing friends, effing friends. Although saying it to my mom is a little difficult since she's buried in a cemetery. But I did say it to the grave wow. site, and uh, so you were you were intuitive. But I, I feel uh, really bad now. Yes, but thank you very much for bringing up my dead mother. Um, and of course you are. This is going great, Jonah. And you are. I am Quincy Rose, the writer, uh, one of the producers and director of the film. See, that's how I get around not mispronouncing difficult words like Rose. Ah, yes, yes. My last name is Brett Snyder, and nobody, even if they hear it, can do it again. German, huh? Yeah, a little. A little bit. I'm from L.A., though. Oh, yeah, yeah, me too. I was Inglewood. from L.A. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. West Side? Big German town, yes. Inglewood. Um, okay. So, <laughs> she's been there. So, the film is uh it's a comedy yeah it's comedy uh, drama it's it's there's a bit of commentary about the state of relations in modern society yeah absolutely and uh tell, tell us a little bit about where the script came from you, you can do your elevator pitch if you want before well you well the i mean you mean like what the film is exactly yeah. or, well the, i mean the film's really about uh, sex and love amongst friends, how the grass seems always greener on the other side, and just uh, kind of the justifications people make uh, in order to go through with something they know is probably not kosher. And um, But the film, I mean, is really, you know, the title kind of gives it away. It's about a bunch of friends who are screwing each other with knowledge of something their other friend has already done in order to justify their behaviors at the time. So... Uh, yeah, that's kind of uh, what it is. Where it came from, really, is... Uh, my, in writing in general, I kind of come from a lot of different places, but I usually come from conversation and uh, dialogue. And I like, um, if something sticks in my head, if somebody tells me a story, uh, there's a little story inside the film uh, that one of the characters, uh, Steve, says, uh, Graham's character, Steve. And um, that was a story that somebody had actually said to me in for the most part and I was just laughing so hard kicking that around my head I thought to myself what would this uh, what would this story be in a group of stories and you know just kind of work from that angle out perfect yeah so how long did it take to shoot the film it took exactly three hours 
three uh, hours. That's amazing. Which <laughs> was a lot. It's all one long shot. No, it was. Uh, I think we, we shot for like ten or eleven days. The sex scenes okay. were really yeah. fast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> fast wow. Very natural. Exactly. But yeah, about eleven days. I think we were our, our shoot was. Yeah. And you were. You, now, were you working with anybody as far as production costs, or did you? Did you do this on your own dime? You're independent films. Yeah, my, always, my, always interested in my company, which is me, I financed it. Excellent. So, uh, but um, yeah, and then but we had a great line producer who helped us get everything uh, cheaper than we would have to, you know, and uh, really watched every penny, which you need on a shoot like this. A great producer and a great uh, cast that really just help us. Uh, push through things faster than, as you need to on the, you know. And without anybody else, you were able to bring what you wanted to the film, which it seems to be a, a recurring theme among, among, oddly enough, independent films that, that they don't get compromised by studios. And, yeah. Yeah, you, what's the current theme? You mean like a sexual-based film or something? Anything, or? language. You oh, know, language. You're, yeah, not well, trying, you're not trying no. to hit a, a, a Absolutely studio not. I, I don't market. write in studio lingo anyway. I, I have to write the way people talk in real life, and this is my experience is how people talk. And it's concentrated into a simple, I mean, into a, a single, singular story, but um, it's, uh, it's very much how people talk to each other these days. There's nothing really shocking in it. Intentionally so. If somebody's shocked, I, I, it's probably just how the, comp uh, the composition of it is. But it's—I don't think it has anything to do with anybody's never heard something that was said in there before. Okay. Can we uh, maybe yeah, go around and talk to you? Bring some people in. All right. Well, uh, I'll start on my right since this lovely lady in her blue dress is next to me, Jillian Lee, who plays Lara in the film. Jillian. Hi. So, Laura, which you, your character? You are you are currently in a relationship at the beginning of the film. Yes, the only person I don't sleep with in the movie, I think, is my boyfriend. That's cool. That's really cool. <laughs> well, that's an important... That's a fun fact for IMDb. <laughs> such is life. Such no, is life. That's actually true. I don't sleep with you Me, either. No, we don't. Bummer. Maybe on the side. That's that. Really. On the side, yeah. The, uh, everybody else I sleep with. We don't I thought there was going to be something with this chandelier reference, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Uh, and so that's that. Yeah. Thanks for asking. And, next and then year. next to uh, Jillian, we have Vanessa DiBasso, who plays the lovely Camille. Hello. <laughs> and and you came to this film. What have you done? What was your previous experience? My experience was basically just sleeping with my best friend's boyfriend. <laughs> okay. And her best friend's boyfriend's. And this is all in prep for the film? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Okay. Stanislavski <laughs> method. Do it. So, yeah, I'm just a very sensual exploration bitch friend. Bad friend. I don't think she's a bad friend. You're, you're, I feel like she's more of like a younger, she's a younger girl and she gets... Trying to find myself. Yeah, trying try to, to find, find herself. I mean, you know, kind of acts in a way that she should be acting. It's the rest of the people who are kind of acting a little bit out I thought she was like the most honest person at home. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah. yeah. She, she doesn't uh, lie about what she is. She says who she is and how she is and you should expect what you get. Right. Yeah. Now, going over to this side. Going uh, to your left and my left too, I guess, is Tyler Dawson, who plays the lead character of Jacob. I do um, appreciate when actors and actresses come to a festival and haven't changed their look. Oh, that's the end of contract. Usually it's grown a beard or shaved a beard. Yeah. <laughs> and that's just that's just the guy. So. That's, 
You want to say something about uh, oh playing Jacob or the film or whatever? Yeah, Jacob was great. Me and Quincy had met previously on another project that we were working on. Is how I came to this and uh, read the script, and it seemed like you know a fun project exploring things. We all we have all lived in LA and tried to date there, so you know. Um, yeah, we just had a lot of fun. Now, when I was watching the film, you in particular, when you're about to fabricate something, something happens to your delivery. Oh, really? Is it intentional? Um, yes. You know, yes. Ray, when someone asks if you're a god, you yes. say yes. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> no, you pitch a little higher and you have a little bit of a pause. Pa- probably. Okay. I haven't seen the film yet. Oh, nice line. <laughs> No, I, yeah, I'm doing it now. You ne- so now you know when I lie all yes, the time. Yeah, so I better, be, I better be careful in the rest of the interview. Uh, I'm not sure. I haven't seen it yet. And it's been a two years today since yeah. we started shooting. So I actually have... I'm like, so I don't remember. <laughs> but absolutely, I did it on purpose. Excellent. You'll enjoy it when you see it. I can't wait. To the left of Tyler, we have Christina Gooding, who Hi. plays um, Sarah in the film. And uh, so, I'm always curious about wardrobe when when we come in because you you your your first two outfits were just like what were they so wholesome oh okay oh, I was expecting I did I lead up to that wrong yeah no, I was like no, that, was, that was really good because I actually thought that when I saw one of this one of the clips from the scenes and I'm wearing this little apron and I'm like man right. they're so fooled at first you're very business like and then you're in the Betty Crocker mode too yeah. and I'm like okay that's where she's going yeah no I think it was, I think those choices were kind of fun because in the end maybe the audience gets to have a little bit of a um, surprise when maybe the, the the Betty Rocker blondie girl goes goes in a different direction. Yeah. yeah. Also, you know, like if you look at her character, it's uh, she lives in this very nice house and everything's kind of in its place and very nice and selected, but uh, you know, kind of uh, collective and uh, interesting. And so there's a whole you know group of people who like if they're going to cook instead of just throwing on some schlubby little apron they put on a cute little something throwback from the 50s or whatnot sure. and uh, kind of give it that little uh, I almost want to put an apron on over the apron so you don't spoil the apron yes probably <laughs> probably and then to the left of Christina we have Graham Skipper who plays the very lovable Steve oh yes <laughs> I'm a good guy you have some of the best lines in the film. I mean, including, including the speech that he was talking about. Yeah, yeah it's one of those speeches. It's a good. It's a, yeah. I don't want to give it away. Get anybody? No, I won't give it. Get a guess in the film. Yeah, Steve is. Um, Steve doesn't really have. Well, he has his own moral compass. I'm not sure that anybody here might agree with his moral compass, but he's certainly sure of himself. And I think more than a, any character I can really think of, he's. He's a guy that uh, is 100% certain of who he is and what he wants to do, and he does not care what anybody else does. I thought you played you played well off of... I forgot the character's name. Jacob. Jacob. You played well off of Jacob because Jacob is actually... says a lot one way and goes a lot another way, whereas you are entirely focused. Yeah. In, as long as you're not trying to... As long as it's not something you're really lying to. Yeah, no, I, well, I think, you know, I remember while we were making the film, we talked a lot about, about, like, why do I have any friends? <laughs> why does anybody like me? And then, you know, you know, talking to Quincy and talking to Tyler, and we were, we sort of came to that, you know, well, 
everybody has someone, you know, and, and it's a matter of, uh, you know, we, we became real friends in real life and, and played well off each other and, I don't know, it all worked. Cool. Yeah, also, like, none of the characters are, are inherently bad. They all just have their problem areas and, and uh, nobody's innocent in this film. Like you said, if anybody, the Camille character is slightly naive and innocent in that sense. So, uh, but but Steve's not a bad guy. He just, you know, he's caught up in a bad way right now. He does his own thing. He does his own thing, but but he would be the kind of guy who would show up in a, you know, in a heartbeat if something came down to that. He'd be there, and he's he's a solid guy. He just kind of doesn't care. Yeah, I, I always feel like Steve, Steve would be the first guy to have your back in a street fight. You know, sure. Like if you're in a bar and there's a bunch <laughs> of drunken stupidity happening, Steve will be there and punch whoever needs to be punched. You know. Or at least to take a punch. If or or take, a punch. <laughs> exactly. take a punch first. Exactly. But you think he goes down. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. And then starting at this far corner, we have uh, Mr. Victor Warren, who is our, my producing partner on the uh, film. Couldn't have done it without him. So I don't, you want to say a couple things about the film? Um, what should I say? I, it's, whatever you want. You did a great job. Well, in terms of, I mean, in terms of wrangling what you needed to do in terms of the story, in terms of the script, in terms of the actors, in terms of the time. Um, you did a, a really wonderful job. And everybody worked together. We, did, we were very lucky that we had a really great crew. Um, we were seamlessly did 11 days. There was no real, of course we had, well, no real big problems. A couple of behind the scenes, like, didn't we get that? I thought we got that certificate. Um, mm. Oh, well, let's talk to the police officer now. Oh, yeah. But uh, it was all... But an indie film's not complete exactly. without a cop interrupting. Exactly. You know what I mean? Exactly. So, yeah. but you did a great job. It was, a, it was a, uh, a really great experience. And that's why we keep Victor Warren around. He keeps our spirits high. And uh, Any particular crazy days on the set? Did, oh, did I mean... Crazy days, made like in what way? Like, I mean, it's all just everything goes sideways. Nothing, like not everything went sideways, but that particular day that Victor's talking about, it was like we had to get everything because we were in a location that we were going to lose soon, and and suddenly we're outside walking, and then now there's policemen there, and it's like get everything inside, get everything inside, and uh, just like get all the equipment inside, and just with the you know the police were nice actually and allowed us to get a permit kind of like you know back back order of permit sort of thing. And, I love the uh, fact that LA cops know that you need permits. To oh, do they, yeah, they know. So, they, know. they know exactly where craft service is. Yeah, yeah, yeah great. Where are the donuts? Yeah, yeah. But uh, I don't know. Does, it, what do you, does anybody want to chip in? Yeah, yeah your experiences. Or? Christina happened to be. Oh, this is funny. Friends. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Tyler's one of my oldest friends. I've known him since basically I was born. Yeah, so. I've basically known Christina since she was a baby. So when we got cast in this, as we, lovers, as lovers. <laughs> yes. And we had to do the sex scene, and I, I think it was the first. Was it? It wasn't the first day. Oh, something was first day. What was the first day? Was it that? No. Oh, yeah. The threesome was the. Oh, the. Th- no. 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 You, it was. You were the first day. Oh, it was. So first scene up. Day I think maybe first scene up was. We had to do. That was my first day. No, post, post-coital. <laughs> yeah. Anyways. So you think it would make it more comfortable because we've known each other that long. Oh, yeah. We're almost like brother-sister, so it almost seemed more strange getting into a bed naked together and acting Look at it how out. she's like having a seizure. <laughs> <laughs> she's just nodding her head very fervently. <laughs> oh, yeah. Right, right in the face. <laughs> no, it was, I mean, being able to work together as, like, we've known each other forever and to be on a film together was a really awesome experience. It was like, we were flying here today this morning and we were like, wait a minute. 
we're flying to a film festival in a film that we did together at a premiere. This is pretty cool. Yeah. So, yeah. Thirteen years ago, I was shooting up heroin, and who knew I was going to be doing anything like You're this? You're doing her voice now, You know, right? uh, yeah, I'm putting in words for her. <laughs> yeah, this, this is what she told me before taking on the role. Uh, Vancouver's a terribly drug-ridden place, oh, yeah. you know. It's all, oh, yeah. it's all junkies and incest and transsexual behaviors. Drugs. You know, it is, exactly. But... You know, I do want to say, everybody did such a great job on this film as the actor. I know you hear the director probably say that all the time or whatever, but really, everybody brought to the table something totally different than the other person, yet complementary to the group as a whole. And that's very important in doing a film that's very quickly shot. You have to have people getting along on the set. You have to have everybody knowing their lines. Everybody was a consummate professional and, uh, you know, just really showed up and, and knocked their part out of the park and and uh, quite honestly if there are any problems with the films it's entirely on me and how I cut it and yeah I cut most of them out entirely but uh, no it, you know, it, it, I really do think like they all did their job and anywhere the film if it has flaws every film has flaws but if it does it's all entirely on my shoulders and that's why and uh, and I mean that I actually mean that and, and maybe not everybody says that kind of stuff but I'm just a no bullshit kind of guy when it comes to this and uh real honest evaluation of the stuff and I think it's a really fun film I'm psyched that these guys are going to get to see it for their first time they've all seen scenes and is the first showing tonight? tonight at 9.45 uh, I don't know if you're getting this on the air before that but if otherwise yeah, it will be on the okay air. but we do have another screening tomorrow Sunday March 6th at 6.30 and Thursday, Thursday the 10th it'll definitely be on the air before Thursday great so Thursday people come on out and um yeah, you know. Uh, I think it, it actually is one of my picks for CineQuest, and I think you have a very good chance of being an encore showing next Sunday as well. Is that so, right? Yeah. I think oh, you interesting. And that's assuming people come, right? The people are they showing up? <laughs> it's, it's got all the right... Yeah, well, <laughs> with the with the current tornado like uh, weather we have outside... That's right. Um, it's got all the elements that you want in a, in a, a fun, witty, sexy, um, clever film. And... I can't. I can't rate. I, I'd rate it right up there with uh, anything else that's in a quest. Look at that. Yeah. Thank, thank you. you very much. Top yeah. of the list. That's awesome. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you all for taking time out of uh, because yeah. I know there's free booze next door. Oh yeah. Wait. What? What? <laughs> so uh, again, thank you. Welcome to Cinequest. Oh, thank you for and having I hope you. Enjoy your experience. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. What a great time. We love talking to writers, directors, actors, all the creative people who make these independent films. If you're not currently seeking out independent films, now's the time to start. You won't regret it. And just a reminder that if you go to fanboyplanet.com, you can find links to each of these films with information on their showings at CineQuest and other showings you might be able to enjoy if you're not in the San Francisco, San Jose Bay Area. Of course, if you're listening to this before March 13th and you're in the Bay Area, you really should check out the film guide for CineQuest at www.cinequest.org. Only halfway through the festival, folks, so get on down there and, and explore, find some new films, and get excited about films again. When next we meet, we hope to have the whole Fanboy Planet compliment delivering fanish news you can use. In the meantime, I'm Rick Brett Snyder reminding you to use, use your, your powers, powers only, only for, for good. good.
And thanks once again to the great Luke Ski for use of his music in this podcast. Visit Luke Ski at www.thegreatlukeski.com. Too long and we'll we'll shoot for about uh, 10 to 15 minutes. Yeah. Great. Okay. Perfect. Perfect. That's a, great. A good conversation. All right. That's nice. Nice. Help. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, all right. Take it away. We're already recording. So we are here at Cinequest at the Continental. This is a beautiful patio. This is wonderful. And I love the firelight. You know, I, we have, we, we've never recorded by firelight. I honestly before. think this is the first. Uh, this is the first night we've ever done a firelight podcast. I like <laughs> it, um, and it seems somewhat appropriate. I, a sight unseen. Um, uh, we're here with Keith Aram and Nick Pope, uh, who are here at Cinequest with the Phoenix Incident. Right. Which I first identify yourselves so people know who's talking. Who's yeah, so I'm, I'm Keith Aram. I'm the writer and the director of the film. Just a second. Let's wait until the plane comes over. And then the hell of the San Jose airport that's being no very plane. close. Yeah, that's, that's no, no plane. plane. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, that's right. Right answer. <laughs> so it's okay right after he says introduce yourself now to go ahead. So I'm uh, Keith Aram. I'm the writer and the director of The Phoenix Incident. What? So, uh, again, thank you. Welcome to SunnyQuest. Oh, thank you for having me. Enjoy your experience. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank we appreciate it. Thank you so much. It. Yeah. Fanboy Planet. Woo! Okay, do you want to do a bumper for us? Sure. What do we say? Okay. So, the way the bumpers go is it's very complex, but you're all professionals, so you do it in one take. You want take, right? So, the, our catchphrase is use your powers only for good. So, it's use your powers the pause only for good. Well, it'll be hilarious. You know this. Right? Only so, only for good. So, I'm going to say, so this is Fanboy Planet signing off, and remember, only use your powers, powers only for good. good. It's one in every crowd. <laughs> Thank you. We're Thanks very much. Only use your powers. No, I... Powers.